Hebrews chapter 2. All right, let's go ahead and open in prayer and get started. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love and care for us. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at this chapter. Help us to see what you would want us to see from all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Hebrews 1 was all about the preeminence of Christ. And basically, chapter 2 continues that same theme. So chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. And if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to, unto us by them that heard him? God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and diverse miracles and the gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For unto, the angel, for unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, thereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou hast visitest him? You made him a little lower than the angels and crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, and crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. We're going to stop there. So here we have the writer of Hebrews, which I'm going to probably slip and say is Paul most of the time because that's what I was taught. Uh, we don't know for sure as we talked about in the first, first session. But he says, therefore we ought to give earnest heed of the things which we have heard. And this is something that's very important. He goes, therefore, by necessity is what he's saying. By necessity when he says ought. We need to pay earnest heed to the things that we have heard. And so this is very important, earnest, attentive. How easy is it for us to be absent-minded hearers of God's word in so many cases? And God's word will change our life if we pay attention to it and we have earnest attention given to it. And so all this previous chapter, we're talking about the preeminence of Christ, how he is greater than anything else. And it says, therefore, we by necessity ought to give a more active listening to this, lest at any time we should let it slip or escape from our thought. And this is something that is so important. You know, how many times do we read the scriptures and we get done reading it and then we go, what did I just read? Unfortunately, I've done that just about like everybody else. You know, it's time to read my book, read the chat, read the verses and I read them and I get done with it. I'm going... What exactly did I just read? And that's what it comes down to, and that's what this is basically doing. Give the more earnest attention to it. If it takes three or four times to read it, if it takes a hundred times to read it, spend that time and really understand what it is that you're reading, because he says, lest at any time we should let it slip or escape our mind. And God already knows in our fallen state that we're going to tend to let things slip anyway. You know, we are forgetful hearers. We, aren't, we, 
we do forget. And I hate the fact that I have forgotten more scripture than most people probably know. But, you know, I go in and go, and I know this. Why am I have to research this all over again when I've known this? And letting things kind of slip away and fall by the wayside. And it says, for if the word spoken by the angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, the angels were disobedient to their first call. And this is something that one third of the angelic beings fell with Lucifer. And here he's saying, you know, if what, if what they were taught and they fell is true, how much more so the reward that they're going to get for that. When Lucifer and a third of the angels fell, God created the lake of fire for them. That, that was their punishment at the end of all time. Now, man has fallen since then because of Lucifer's or Satan's attack. You know, did God really say, and he tempted the Eve into sin, and then Adam fell, fell from his position, and man will end up spending time in the lake of fire by, for rejecting Jesus Christ, but it was not created for man. It was created for the angelic beings, the ones that had seen God. They have, the, the angels have zero uh, goodness of falling from God because they have seen. We, we only walk by faith. It's one thing for us to fall. We, we've never seen. But the angels were there. They were in heaven. Lucifer was the number one angel in heaven until he fell. And he fell possibly because of man's creation or shortly before that. We don't know exactly in the time frame when, when he fell and when he led these angels astray. But it says, if the word spoken by angels was steadfast or sure, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense and reward, the angelic forces that fell will be judged, just as human beings, when we fall, will be judged. And this is something that is all part of this process that he says, you know, you look at them and they fell. One of the things that Hebrews takes and, and goes through is a lot of places it does not explain where it's starting from because its target audience is Hebrews, the Hebrew people who know the truth. So he doesn't sit there and, you know, he doesn't explain who God is. He doesn't explain miracles. He doesn't explain the fall of the angels. He just says, well, you all know these things to be true, so let me go through and build upon that truth. And you know, this is kind of very interesting. It's the way the Bible starts. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, Genesis 1.1 does not explain who God is, does not explain that God is omnipresent and, and always existed. It just starts with he's there. And so... The book of Hebrews sometimes is hard to understand because the writer does not build the case. He goes, you, you all know these things, so I don't have to explain everything. He goes, because you know these things. Right? So he's saying the angels. You, know, you all know the angels out there, and you know that they fell. All right? And he goes on. He doesn't explain their fall. He doesn't go any of this. He goes, but he goes... They, they, their word spoken to them was steadfast, and by their fall, there was judgment. And it was righteous judgment. 
And this is what he's, what he's saying. And then he goes, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So this is the interesting thing for he's speaking to them. We know the truth of salvation. How then shall we escape? The angels were judged. How can we escape when we know the truth? And this is very true for even us as Christians. The more we know about God's word and the more we understand God, the more we're held accountable for what we know and, uh, and what we do. It's because we know better now. We have been trained. We understand things. And when we do something wrong and we know better, this whole idea is how can we escape? when we have neglected, you know, this whole idea of neglecting or being careless is a better definition of it. Being careless in the way we hear, being careless in the way we act. And this is why it is so important as we get to know God that we take it very serious. He is not loose with his, with his way of life. He is not loose with what he expects of us. When we become his children, he has great expectations. And he says, don't neglect what you know. And this is why it's hard sometimes to study and, and why we're told study to, to be a, a workman that need does not be ashamed, rightly handling the, the word of God. We're told that we're to rightly divide God's word. We're to, told to prepare and know. Uh, Romans 12.2 tells us that we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds in the word and that we're not to be neglectful, not to be, you know, oh, well, it's not, not that big a deal. And this is something that is really bad in our day and age. There's lots of Christians who don't take God's word seriously. And then they wonder why their life is falling apart, why their family is falling apart, while their church is falling apart, while their, while their government is falling apart, and they're going, well, you know, I just don't understand any of the stuff. My whole life is just falling apart because they're being neglectful hearers. And this is something that is very strong in today's world. There are, are people teaching in seminaries that most of the Bible is symbolic. Don't, don't take it for what it says. I, I like what you said this morning for Sunday school. I said, get to know God live the way you want to live. I like that. Yeah. The more we get to know God, the more we can just need to, I mean, and the more we know God, the more we can just live our life because we live according to what he wants. And, but all of this comes down to, do I know his word? Am I really learning his word? Now, we're going to spend our entire life learning his word and then getting to know it more and better with each, each passing year decade uh, but do we keep in mind what we're learning do we apply what we have learned or are we being neglectful and just kind of oh well yeah I heard it yeah well I heard it but it didn't go anywhere it didn't change the way I thought and he says how can we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard it. So the writer of, the, of this book has got two points being made here. He said this whole message started with Jesus. 
Jesus is the New Testament. The new rules, all about grace. Now, grace was all through the Old Testament and mercy was all through the Old Testament. But Jesus really changed the message in front of people and said, it's God's grace. There's going to be a work where God is going to change you. And then it says, it was confirmed to us by them that heard him. Heard who? Jesus. So this is, the, the writer of this book is going back and saying, I have had contact with the disciples. The ones that have heard it directly from Jesus, I have heard the message. And so this is the good news of this book is that he says, I have secondhand information. I wasn't there necessarily when Jesus spoke this, but I heard it from the disciples. I saw, he says, all the things that were confirmed on this. What, what confirmed it is from verse 4. God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. The gifts of the Holy Spirit and the miracles are what confirm the New Testament. And these gifts and these miracles started as simple as healings, casting out demons, new lives, new life because of the of the new blood testimony that was brought in and those are these are miracles that are still happening when somebody becomes saved that is the greatest miracle that can be used to prove God's love for his people when somebody becomes a new creation has a new way of thinking a new love for God all because he accepts the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the gift of salvation and they become new and that doesn't even count all the other gifts and wonders and everything that go along. All right? There are still salvation uh, healings going on. There are still resurrections. There are still miracles going on that are signs and wonders of what God is doing. And I love it. I love praying for people and seeing people get healed. I love seeing people turn to Christ and become Christians and become a new creation. That to me is the greatest miracle of all. When all of a sudden they are changed and it's as like somebody has just flipped a light switch and they are no longer struggling with their, what they believe. They've now got the power of God in their life and they're starting to live. They're starting to understand the word of God. They're excited about God and their whole life is changed. And here he says, you know, all of this started with Jesus and continued with the disciples and he says, and we have heard them. They have confirmed them to us. And now we know, you know, if it was Paul, like I believe it is, he did meet with James and John and Peter and many of the disciples. If it was Apollos or any of those other guys that we talked about in the, in the past, they all have talked to the disciples. So any number of those people qualify. But they had communicated to somebody who had secondhand information who had gotten it directly from Jesus. And so here's, here is he speaking and saying all of these things, and then God gave them power to confirm. And I don't know if you really fully understand this, but Pentecost was a great moment for the Christian church. Before Pentecost, the disciples were defeated. They had no power. Now, they had walked with Jesus. They had performed miracles and all of these other things before he died. But he had died 
and they were hiding. They were hiding in the upper room, afraid to do anything. Jesus had been killed. Granted, he'd resurrected, but you know, he'd been killed, and they were very concerned, and they were no power. And then Pentecost came, and the Holy Spirit came down upon them. And that very night, Peter preaches, and, and 3,000 people get saved in one night, and then another 5,000, and then thousands and thousands get saved. And the power of God changed who they were and changed them from being fearful, frady cats up in an in a upper room waiting to be arrested to bold preachers of the gospel. And this is where we are. If we're in Christ, we should be with the boldness of the Holy Spirit in us. Now, does that mean we automatically start there? No, we're going to have to learn. We're going to have to spend time getting there. But we should be getting bolder and bolder as we see the Holy Spirit working in our lives, as he's teaching us, and we get just a little more bold every time, a little more, little more excited about God because he's in us. He has changed us. And we get to listen, and even to this day, we get to talk to other people who, who know Jesus. And I love this when you talk to people and they're excited because they now know Jesus. And they're excited about it. They, they're they're excited about what is spoken in the Word of God. I love being around brand new Christians and they're excited and going, you know what I learned yesterday or what I learned in the Bible or what I heard or do you know what God did for me? And I love hearing those kinds of stories because I've been walking with God for a long time and I've kind of gotten a little jaded over the years because I'm so used to these things. But new Christians, it's all brand new. And there's an excitement in their life when God does something. You know, you know what? I prayed and God did this. Oh, that is so wonderful. I am glad to hear that. That is, you know, and it gets you excited as a Christian who's been walking with God for a while to listen to the excitement and what they're going through. So for us as experienced Christians, never belittle the small things that, that excite the, the new Christian. Because think back, hopefully you were there at some point in time where everything was new. Everything. Every answered prayer was new. Every time you opened the Bible, it was new. Every time you looked at things, it was new. Now, I still have that in Bible study where everything, you know, lots of stuff is new. Not as much as it used to be because I've been studying for 50 years, but there's still lots of times when I look at the Bible and say, wow, I have never seen that before. This is, this is new. This is exciting. Now, it's not like when I first got saved and everything was new and exciting. But you know, his mercies are new every morning. We should be finding something new and exciting about God every day. Because he's infinite. He is infinite. He is so much more than we are. So there, we will never know God completely. Ever. And I don't care if you've lived to be a thousand years old and followed him that whole time, you're still not ever going to get to know God completely because he is infinite. He is much more than we can ever comprehend. And this is that whole process. Are we reaching out for him? And it says in verse 4, And God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts from the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. We need to be very careful that we're not trying to control God. Everything is done by his will. 
And I think it's so funny when I talk with people and they're going, well, I've got God all figured out. I know exactly what he's doing. I know my Bible so well. I know exactly what God's going to do. And I'm going, wow, you are, you are treading in some very dangerous uh, territory there that you think you know God so well that you know exactly what he's going to do. What was Satan's big crime? His crime wasn't that he wanted to be greater than God. In Isaiah, it said, I will be like the Most High. I will sit on the mount with God. He wasn't looking to be above God. He's going, I know God so well that I can sit with him and I can, I can counsel with him because I know him. We're in dangerous territory if we think that we can counsel God. We're in dangerous territory if we think we know exactly what God's going to do in any situation. Because he says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. My ways are, greater than your, are, are higher than your ways. And you know what? That is going to be true for all of eternity. Even when we have a glorified body in heaven, God's thoughts will still be higher than our thoughts. He is still going to be God. When we get to spend eternity with him, we do not all of a sudden become God. You know, knowing all things and everything, we will be closer to him. We will not forget the things that we've learned. That's the part I'm looking forward to, not, not forgetting anymore. And, you know, and I, I've kind of said it's tongue-in-cheek. If there's ever a time where we learn everything that there is to know about God, he'll just create more new stuff for us to, to have to learn. Not that we'll ever get there, but, you know, if somehow we got so smart that we knew everything that God knows, he's infinite, he'll just create more stuff. So we'll never know everything he knows. We will never be as powerful as he is. And we will never be omniscient and, and, and omnipresent. That is him. That is God's place. Now, we will have a lot of great things. You know, as, as in the demonic world, I believe Satan can move very quickly in this physical world. But he's not everywhere at the same moment. He can only be one place at one time. Now, I believe he can get from one side of the, the world to the other very quickly, but he is not omnipresent. And this is something even for us. We will never be omnipresent. We will never be all-knowing. That is God. Huh? Satan? No, he's a created being. Now, always remember, Satan is created. He has all the limitations that we have. Now, again, he's probably much faster than we are. He's been alive a lot longer than we have. So he's gotten very smart over the years. But he's not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. He doesn't know the beginning from the end. He is stuck in time because he is a created being. And this is all of where he's at. Now, he may have more freedom in the time continuum than we do, but he is not able to go forward and backwards in time. He does not see the beginning from the end like God does. He, God does he's not like God where he fills all of time as well as all, all of place. And this is important for us to understand. Why is God so much more special? Well, he knows everything. He is everywhere present. He is every time present. He's outside of time. He's above time. You know, however many dimensions there are out there, depending on what side of physics you're on, he fills all of those dimensions as well. You know, and perfect on top of all of that. So 
that is God and everything else is some small subset of that because God is God and nobody else is God. And this is very important. Now you've got the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which are all God, all omnipresent, all, all filling of all time, and everything else is a created being with problems in certain. Now there may be more, you know, more ability to travel and more, more knowledge over the time of learning, but they're still created beings that are not God. And this is something very important for us to be able to understand. And our goal is not to become God. All right? Uh, now, when you believe that, you start getting into all kinds of cults. All right? The Mormons believe that the ultimate goal is to be so perfect that you become the God of your own planet. All right? Now, they are the, the ultimate polytheists. Now, you tell that to the average Mormon, they don't, they'll go, no, that's not true because they don't read the covenant of the, the, the pearl of great price and the, and the covenant of covenants and all these other books that all talk about the God of each planet being a, a God. Not the God, but the God of that planet. So the God of this planet is not the original omnipresent God in their, in their mindset. He's a God, one of many gods. And so we need to be careful because our goal is not to become God. Our goal is to be adopted into his family and learn a lot more about it and be closer to it. And when we've been around for millions and millions of years, it will seem like we know a lot more stuff than we do now, and we will, but we will never be all-knowing. We will never be omnipresent. And this is very important for us to fully understand. The scriptures end in Revelation with a new heaven and new earth that binds us up into a new time and place that is somehow different, but perfect, and yet has time in it. Because it tells us in Revelation that the tree of life produces fruit in its seasons, and that's talking about the new heaven and new earth. So there's some form of time. Now, it may be so long a period that it is virtually infinite for us, but there is no way that we look at it the way we look at it today. And this is something that's very hard for us to understand because we are told in the new heaven and new earth that we will reign with Christ. What are we going to reign over? I don't know. You know, God says some of you are going to be in charge of cities and, and territories. Some of you are just going to be basically workers. Whatever God has in store for us will be perfect for us. And we'll be happy with whatever it is that he's given us. And we may just, as this chapter is going to tell us, reign over the angels. Maybe the angels are the whole workers and, and we'll all have some, some authority uh, and we'll reign over the angels who will be workers for all of eternity. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know all of what's going to happen because I'm not God. And God doesn't tell us a whole lot about eternity and the new heaven and new earth. He gives us glimpses of it. Just enough to be enticing. And here he's saying, you know, there's, that all of this is according to his will. And then it says, For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. So in other words, we think of the angels as being so strong, so powerful, they're controlling everything. 
none of them are going to be the rulers of the new heaven and new earth. Nothing is put in subjection to the angels. And I think this is part of what made Lucifer angry. He's the chief angel out there, and all of a sudden, man is created, and he's going, what are these insignificant balls of dust <laughs> that you're going to put us under? And drove him to a, a pride that led him into rejection. And so there's no angel that has been put in, some, you know, put in subjection of, of the world to come. And it says, verse 6 says, but, but one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you visited him? This is from Psalm 8, verses 4 and 5, that God spoke. Psalm 8, Psalm 8 uh, 4, and, 4 and 5. And he says, you know, what is man that you are mindful of him? This is one of the things that just amazes me when I think about it. Why does God care about us? Yeah, this is, this is a phenomenal thing when you think about it. God created man knowing we were going to fall and still created us and gave us uh, control over the, over the current world that was created and going to give command uh, control over the new heaven and new earth. This is mind-boggling <laughs> to think, who is man that you are mindful of us? God, why would you create us? Why would you do any of this? Why would you put us in charge of anything? Why do you allow us to stick around this world to evangelize the world to draw people to Christ? when he could send the angels to, to do a better communication. He could do it with the Holy Spirit and be perfect communication to every single person, and yet he gives us the privilege of sharing the gospel. He gives us the privilege of living for him and being a light to this world. And all of this comes down to him being mindful of us. You know, and this is, again, most likely what irritated Lucifer and the angels. Like, how can he take these, you know, that ball of dust, <laughs> that ball of dust that rejects him and then uses them and uses them to be rulers over us? Yeah, this is hard for the angels. It's hard for the ones that fell anyway, the ones that did, the two-thirds that didn't. They, they've accepted God's plan. But this is all that heaven. Then we, verse 7, we continue on. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of your hands. This is primarily a prophecy of Jesus. Jesus was made a little lower than the angels. But it's also us. We are a little lower than the angels. Right now in this world, the angels have control. The angels are our keepers. They are the schoolmasters for us. And you know, as you think about this, and it's spoken very time, many times in the, in the epistles, how 
we are under the tutorship of the angelic world. And it goes back to the Roman and the Greek way of doing things that the slaves were in charge of the children while they were children. And what the slave said went. Now, even though the slave was the, the, the child was technically the master of the slave, because they were a child, the, the slave had direct, you know, told them what to do and when to do it and, and how to do it and all of that. And then came that moment when they, become, they became of majority age and the whole relationship flipped. And now they were in charge and the, and the slave now did everything that they were told even though before that they were in charge. And it was just like, you know, one day you're, you're 16, 16, 17 years old, the next day you're 18 and all of a sudden overnight you're now in charge. That's what's going to happen with the angelic world. Right now, we are under their tutorage. We are under their protection. But there will come this time when God says, now you're, now you're of age. Now, it'll be during the millennial kingdom was where it's going to start. But all of a sudden, the whole relationship with the angelic world changes from their tutoring, their being in charge, to being back to the slave that they that they are even even in today's world and they are subjective to god they are you know they don't get me wrong they can't do whatever they want with us they're under subjection to god but they are the one that cares for us now and this gets us into the the idea of angels and guardian angels and everybody that that are protecting us and and watching over us and giving us the room to stretch our wings and this is something that I'd learned as, I, as my kids grew up. I gave more and more freedom to my kids as they got older and older. Why? Because if they were going to fall flat on their face, I wanted to do while I was still there to be able to help them back, get back up. Now, was that always a good thing? Nope. Sometimes they did really dumb things that really hurt. But I also couldn't have stopped them from doing everything that could be done wrong. And so... It gave them more and more freedom to make mistakes, to, to walk. And this happens to us even. There'll be more and more freedom as we get to know God and we get to be more and more mature. They're going, okay, we give you a little more freedom. We give you a little more, little more activities going on. But eventually there'll be this flipping of the roles where the angels are going to be following after God. And it says... You know, you made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and did set him over the works of your hands. Again, this is primarily Jesus. Jesus was made... Huh? He was made lower than the angels when he was human. And then he took his rightful place after the resurrection. But it is also us. We are lower than the angels right now, but we will see the glory and honor and position. This is when the Bible talks about Jesus having descended from heaven in the heaven's realm to be like man and be subjected to the laws and the rules and everything. And so we see all of this process. And he says, you did set him over the works of your hands. And it says, you have put all things in subjection under his feet for in that he is put in subjection 
under him left nothing that is not put under him, but now we see not yet all things put under him. All things are going to be put under subjection. Jesus died on the cross so that he could conquer death. And this is the beauty of it. He is now over everything again. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father. We, as his bride, as his church, are learning what it means to have things put under subjection to us. And this is where we, we get a little more knowledge, a little more expertise, a little more, more planning. When I was a manager and I trained managers, the hardest thing I ever had to do was give somebody charge of my store, knowing that, you know, wondering if they were ready, putting everything in subjection under them and wondering if they were ready for it. And God will do this. He'll give us a little more authority, a little more authority, a little more authority. One day, we'll have our glorified body and we will have everything placed under our feet especially when the new heaven and new earth comes along. Everything will be the way it was created. When Adam and Eve were created, they were given dominion over this world. They had dominion over all the animals, over everything that was going on. They were put in charge. And when they sinned and fell, they started living so far below their call. They were created king and queen of this world. Almost, you might say, God, you know, God and goddess of this world. And they fell and became subject to everything in this world. So at some point, we'll take the version position that the at the, the at, the at the new heaven and new earth, we will be given back dominion uh, of this world to rule directly under Jesus. Uh, and during the Millennial Kingdom, we'll have a taste of what that's all about because we will reign with Christ during the Millennial Kingdom, but we will reign over a world that is not perfect. Now, the Millennial Kingdom will have a reign that is closer to perfect. The animals will be back to being friendly with each other. The lion will lie with the lamb and the you'll be able to play with the asp and you know, all of this stuff, and, and people will live to be close to a thousand years old again. And, but it is not going to be perfect because sin still reigns during the millennial kingdom. Now, Jesus will reign with an iron rod, and, and people will be doing what they're supposed to do. But at the end of that millennial kingdom, Satan is released. At the end of a thousand years, Satan is released to tempt mankind that have not been glorified. We will have been glorified. When we go into the rapture, we will get our glorified body. We will not be able to sin during that period of time. But the rest of the people that are walking and living during the millennial kingdom will now be tempted. Are you going to obey God or are you going to reject him? Now, I've often thought, you know, why would anybody reject God after a thousand years of good life? But he's ruling with an iron rod. He's making people be obedient. And there's going to be a lot of people that are just going to say, I am tired of being obedient. I want to do what I want to do. And there will be millions that rebel against God with Satan when he's released to be judged. And all of this will come down. But 
we get this taste of what it means to have things under subjection to us. Just a taste during the millennial kingdom. And then, according to Peter, that the whole world will be dissolved in fire. And I really do think that this is, everything is held together by God. You know, we, we look at the very atom. There is not a scientist out there that understands why an atom sticks together. Because like charges should be exploding and, and blowing apart. They call it atomic force. They call it the, the force. They don't know what it is that holds the atoms together. We know that at the end of the millennium that we're going to go into the great white throne judgment. And then death and Hades and everybody that's judged will be sent into the lake of fire. That could be, it, well, that could be with God, that could be an instantaneous thing because God can deal with everybody at the same time. Uh, in the Left Behind books, uh, that is Jenkins's idea that they're all standing there at the White Throne, millions and millions of people all being talked to by God at the same moment. Okay, so it is very likely that all of that can happen virtually instantaneous because we think, well, God, God you're going to deal with billions and billions of people that have walked on this world. You know, if you only spend five minutes with each of those billions of people, how long is it until the White Throne judgment is over? So I do agree with you on that, that this probably will be an instantaneous. God is being able to speak with everybody at the same moment like you know, because of his omnipresence and, and he, can, he can speak with every single person at the same time and the judgment will be done in minutes, hours maybe, because what's hours in a, in a, over, over eternity, and then they will be cast into the lake of fire. Death and hell, Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. But the most important thing that will happen before that happens is that every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And whether they want to or not, they're going to confess. And Satan will probably be forced to speak those words, but he will confess that God is Lord before he's cast into the lake of fire. Nope. Especially if you're, you're confessing him because you don't you're being made to confess. Because this is the same thing when people pray the sinner's prayer. You know, the sinner's prayer is, you know, Lord, I'm a sinner. I, I deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died for my sins. Come in and save me. Okay. There are many people who say those words but do not mean them. They'll, they'll, they'll say they confessed it. They'll say that, you know, well, yeah, I, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that Jesus died, but, you know, I'm not really putting all of my faith and trust in that. And all we need to do is believe Repentance is that whole process where I come down to the fact that God, I know that I'm a sinner beyond all shadow of doubt, I'm turning from my sin and turning to you. It's necessary to get saved. Repentance is necessary to get saved. But it's going to come over a period of time because most people don't recognize what repentance is. But we start out with just this humble, God, I need you. I don't understand what I need. I don't understand 
you know, why I need. And this is how many of us, when we first got saved, really understood everything about what we, had, what we did when we got saved. I wasn't one of them. All I knew is that I was a sinner and I was headed to hell. And that I needed Jesus' gift of salvation. So I accepted that gift. And then I learned what it meant to repent and turn, turn away from my sin and turn to, to God. And all of this comes over time. And this is why it's important when we first get saved that we get trained up by other Christians. And we get to learn the Bible. We get to learn what repentance is. We get to learn how, how to trust more and more in God. And we'll spend our entire life learning this. That is the first part of repentance, that I recognize that I am a sinner. And then I turn away from my sin and turn to God. And that is where repentance comes in. And we, it's very hard because all of this gets wrapped up into one great big ball because it's all God doing the work. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. So this takes us away. What part does repentance play in it? Well, from that verse we go, it doesn't because it's all by grace. But part of the grace that we get from God is to learn to repent and turn away from our sin and turn to God. And this is why it's so important for us to understand that it's all a gift. It's all what God does. And my turning to him allows the Holy Spirit to now indwell me and teach me what repentance is, teach me how to live for him, teach me how to seek after God. And all of that comes as a gift from God and then leads me into repentance and all of, and all of that. Um, and so this is very important. This is a discussion you can have with a lot of people because there are so many people that want to make repentance the issue. Did you repent? Well, repentance is a work. And if I'm saved by grace, not of works, then it's not my repentance that saves me. It is my belief that I need Jesus Christ. And then the gift of the Holy Spirit comes in and I learn repentance through the Holy Spirit's teaching and learn repentance through being taught you know, in church. But mostly it all comes down to the Holy Spirit. You know, and I'm not belittling any teachers that we have. I'm not belittling the Word of God. But the Holy Spirit is the one that is going to truly bring about the change. I recognize that I am a sinner. And that's the first step. I, God, I cannot please you. No matter what I do, I cannot please you. I am surrendering to you. At that point, I'm very close to repentance. I may not know the word. I may not even know what I have done. But it's like, God, I know that I can't do it. Come into my life and change me. And then we start down the road of repentance. We start down the road of getting to know him. And this is why it's very hard to really drag all of these things together. The salvation message is so simple that any child can understand it. I'm a sinner and I need Jesus. 
but it is also so complex that it holds so many variables on it. Jesus had to die for my sins, and I have to, and I have to repent. I have to turn my whole life over to him. I have to turn, turn from what I was doing and turn to God. And now I have to learn to let him be my, be my controller and, and trust in him. And so we have all these things that go on in our life, and salvation is a very complex topic that starts out so simple. All right? And we get to know more and more about salvation as we go along. But this is what the writer here is saying. Don't neglect this salvation. He says, start with what you know. Don't neglect it. And learn. Learn more about it. We will spend our entire lifetime learning more about salvation. And I just cannot begin to tell you how wonderful it is to start looking at salvation and saying, wow, it was so much more. I, I walked forward and I said my prayer, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus Christ and come into my life. And I was changed. And I know that I was changed. Did I know about repentance? Did I know about his grace? Did I know about his mercy? No, all I knew is I needed Jesus. Over the years, I have learned more and more about salvation. I have learned about the, report, the importance of repentance. And again, when we're in this book of Hebrews, they don't talk a lot about repentance, you know, defining it because they expect them to understand repentance. Part of their worship of God involved, I give you my sacrifice, I lay my hands on that sacrifice, and I lay my sins in, uh, uh, you know, I confess my sins over that, and I turn away from my sins, and that sacrifice was killed. They understood repentance. Not completely, not thoroughly, but they understood repentance. And so when they come in, they're not really explained, you know, well, now you know, you've got to get out there, and you've got to repent, you've got to... You've got to do this. You've got to confess your sins. You've got to repent. It was part of what they knew from Scripture. And this is where we are at. As, the, as we start walking with God, we start to really start understanding, oh, I, I do need to repent. I need to confess my sins and turn away from my sin and turn to God. Because if we don't turn away from our sins, have we truly turned our life over to God? And this is part of what the epistles say over and over again. If somebody continually sins, then they don't know God. And this is something that he's not saying just because I keep falling, but I choose not to give up my sin. Well, because there are people out there that say, I am not giving up my sin. I am an adulterer or a fornicator, and I am not giving up my fornication. I don't care what the Bible says. I don't care about this. I am not giving up. In this particular case, they probably have not turned their life over to God so that they weren't saved in the first place because they never entered into a repentance. They never entered into giving their life over to God. Now, there are sins that just beset us, and I just keep finding myself doing the same sin, and that takes me into... Romans, where Paul says, I, I do the things I don't want to do, I don't do the things I, I want to do, oh, woe is me. And there is this point where sometimes I just keep falling in a sin that I did not want to do. 
I had no desire to do it, you know, on one side of me. The, the Christian side of me doesn't want to do it. The spiritual side doesn't want to do it. But my flesh is weak. And I make provisions for, for that sin. And I end up falling. And then there's the other side where I just choose. I am not giving up this sin. There's no way. There's no how. I know it's wrong, but I choose not to give it up. If you have a sin like that, then you have to be, start looking and going, do I know God? Do I know God because I am choosing to be disobedient? And that is a dangerous place to be. I'm not going to say you're not saved, but when you're choosing to walk in a sin and you know it's a sin and you are purposely choosing to walk in that sin, you have a problem in your life. And you need to really start looking and saying, God, do I really know you? Have I repented? Now, I'm not going to say that you haven't because, you know, again, we're saved by grace, not by works. And so anytime we start graying that area out, we have a trouble. You know, where is that line that says, I am purposely sinning, and, and, and because I'm purposely sinning, God says, you're not one of my children. And where is that I keep falling into this sin without, without meaning to? And it is a hard area. And this is why it's not for me to judge anybody on where they are with God. Matter of fact, it's hard for you to be your own judge as to whether you are, are, are there or not. And you really kind of have to understand, am I bothered by this sin? Am I, am I struggling with this sin? And if I just go out and I do whatever that sin is, and I just do it, and I do it, and I do it, and I do it, and I'm not even bothered a little bit by it, then I have something I have to be able to look and say, do I truly know God? Am I really his child? Now, most everything that I do in my life, I'm bothered by it some, at some level. You know, I know that it's wrong. I know that I shouldn't be doing it. And I kick myself all over the place sometimes saying, why do I keep falling for this thing? Because I don't want to be doing it. And in that case, you're in the right place. But if you're going out and saying, you know, well, I'm just going to go out and fornicate every night because I, I just like doing it. And you're not bothered by it. You're not, you're, you're not recognized. Maybe on the one side you recognize it's a sin, but you're just, just going to continue doing it. At that point, you have to begin to say, do I truly know God? Have I truly given my life to him? Because to me, one of the scariest verses in the Bible is when Jesus said, many in that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't die. And they give a whole list of, I went to visit people in the hospital, I, I fed the poor, I, I clothed the naked, I helped the widows, but they never turned their heart over to God. And this is something that you will, you will know the difference in this when you really look at your life. Am I bothered? Am I in a, in a, am I in a Romans, you know, I'm doing the things I don't want to do, I'm not doing the things I want to do, oh, woe is me? Or is it, I just enjoy this thing and I don't care? If you're, I just enjoy this and I don't care, you might have a problem. All right? Now, there are also sins that we just don't know that are sins yet. Because we haven't studied enough of God's word and he hasn't really kicked into our life and said, I need you to change this part of your life. And those are sins of ignorance. I just don't know any better. And this is part of what I have found over the years. All of a sudden, God will say, uh, 
I don't want you doing this anymore. Uh, God, I, could, I used to be able to do that for decades. What, what's the problem? And he goes, this verse here is the problem. I am now telling you that you, this is a sin. And now I have to make a judgment. Am I going to turn that over to God and start looking for victory over that area? And this is, why, again, why we need to be careful looking at other people. Because what God is judging me for and changing me for, he may not be talking to you at all about it. Because you're not ready for it. And this is something that we have to be careful. It is so easy for us to look and say, well, God, you said I can't do this. Why can they do it? And God says, they're not where you're at. And he might even say, there's things they can't do that you can do because of how he works with each individual. And this is why it's so hard for us to be able to, to, to walk this line of where is repentance, where is grace, where is mercy, where is my walk with God at? Because every single person God has an individual plan for. And all that they can do is, is look at their life individually and say, Am I walking with God? Am I making the changes in my life that he's asking me to make? Or am I rejecting those changes? And this is hard. And this is why it's hard to, to really figure out. Repentance is part of salvation. But it is not where we start with. We do get to repentance. And we recognize I'm a sinner. And that I need Jesus. And at that point... Have we crossed into the line of repentance? Probably. Do we understand what we did? Nope. And sometimes it takes a long time for us to get to that place where we understand what true repentance is. It takes a long time for me to get to the place where I walk with God and say, I trust you. I am going to change. Well, we can fall. We're going to fall because we're not perfect. But there are places where we just say, I am going to, I don't care. I am sinning. And at that point, we do need to look and say, do I know God? Because if I can sin without conviction, if I can sin without, and I know that it's a sin, and without any problem in my life, then I have to wonder, do I know God? Do I truly know him? If I am being under conviction for what I do, then, then I know God is working in my life. And there's lots of places where I have conviction. Now, I may not be perfect yet on that, and I'm still learning, but when I do it, I recognize, oh, man, God, why did I do this again? Here I am walking, I want to serve you, and here I am doing this same sin all over again and knowing that it's a sin. Now, there, and now don't get me wrong, I have had two or three times in my life where I said, I am just going to do this because I want to do it. That's a dangerous place to be at. But you know, I was under conviction the whole time I decided that I was going to do it, even though I chose to do it. So that conviction told me that I know God and that he was talking to me even though I was doing the wrong thing. Now, there are areas where God has come along later on and said, okay, now you're not to do this. Well, God, for years, I couldn't, it was not a problem. Why is it now a problem? He says, because I'm growing you. 
I'm taking you to the next level. Now I can no longer do something that maybe I've been able to do for 50 years. And God says, you can't do that anymore. I'm now telling you by the scriptures and by my walk with me, that's sin. Before that, it was ignorance. I didn't know it was sin. And God didn't, didn't bother me because there were other more important areas in my life that he was working on. And we tend to try to do this. Well, God teaches us that something's sin, so the first thing we want to do is get others to realize that, what, that it's sin also. We need to be so careful with that. We are not God in somebody else's life. So that means that's when we're growing more into Christ because he's given us more things that we didn't know that sin now. We're drawing closer to him. We're becoming more like him. And this is something where it's very important. I've said this over and over. There can be two Christians both doing exactly the same thing in their life, one of them sinning and one of them's not. And I like to take something like smoking as one of those issues. You know, you have somebody that God says, I don't want you smoking. Your body's a temple of God. I don't want you polluting it, whatever, whatever reason that, that you have. And you're going, God says, you're not to smoke. The other person is smoking and God has not touched their life at all on smoking yet. My job is not to convince them that they're sinning because they're smoking. My job is to quit smoking because God is telling me not to do it. And then let God be God in their life and help them because what may be happening is I'm so worried about that cigarette that I see them smoking and maybe they're out picking up prostitutes you know, every weekend. You know, and I'm worried about them smoking. God's worried about them doing this physical damage to their body that is going to be a bigger deal. And if I get them so focused on their smoking and make them struggle to get rid of something that God has not convicted them of, they fall into a sin that God is working on. And I know that that's an extreme, extreme side, but that really is what happens. We get so worried about people sometimes and try to get them to correct their life. I want you to get into the law and follow this law because it is, you're doing wrong. And God's saying, I'm not touching their life in that area yet. There's other areas that I'm more concerned about. So we need to let people be worked on by God and not try to be God in their life. And sometimes that's tough. You know, when you're the father in a family and you see your kids, you know, making bad decisions, we have a slightly different thing there because we're father or mother, but I'm still not God of their, of their life. I can just tell them what God says about that sin and, and get them to start making a decision for God. But when I think that I'm God in somebody else's life, I'm in trouble. I have enough trouble running my own life rather than trying to be God in somebody else's life. And I've told people this, I go, I, you know, you're gonna to have to answer before God because I am not God. I cannot tell you what you can and can't do with your life. Now I can go through the scriptures, I can give you what God says about things, I can show you what God says, but my job is not to be God of your life. Even if you're my wife or my kids or, or you know, my church, I am still not God in any of those relationships. Now, I can share what God says. I can encourage people to follow God. But I am not God. I'm not, I'm not the one they're going to answer to. When they stand before God at the Bema seat as a Christian, they're not standing in front of me. You know, uh, 
you know, you're not going to stand in front of me and have to answer to what you did with life. You're going to stand in front of Jesus and have a perfect judge looking at your life. And this is why it's so important that we, we get all of this thing, and we're going to end here at verse 8, you know, that everything has been placed under Jesus' feet. And this word for uh, subjection here is hupotasso, which means that they are placed under. And hupotasso is quite an interesting word because this is what it talks about in the Bible when it says we are to be subject one to another. Hupotasso is a military term and says that you're under a ranking individual. And so it's not that that person's better than you are. It's not that they are smarter than you are or better than you are or, or even greater than you are. They have a title and a position that says you are to be subjected to this person. And this is where God has put everything in subjection to Jesus. And then because we're his bride, he's going to put it all in subjection to us. And this is going to be the beauty of what is going to happen is that we learn to be under the right position. In the military, they, they tell you that you may not like the person, but you have to respect the uniform, the, 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 rank, in, the rank on that uniform. You may, you may despise the person wearing that, that, uh, that uniform, but if they have the right amount of gold and stripes, you were to give them the respect of that title. And this is what hupotasso means. They get the respect just because of the title and position God gave them. The husband is head of the family and he's subjected to Christ, hupotasso to Christ. The wife is subjected, hupotasso, to the husband. Not because he's smarter, not because he's better, not because, you know, he might not even be as spiritual as his wife. But he has a title and a position and God says, you're to abide under that title. Now the smart person does not lord it over that person just because they have a title. When I, looked at, when I was thinking about going to the academy, my dad gave me one big piece of advice and said, make sure you listen to the chiefs when, you, when, you're, out, you know, when you're on your cruises and stuff and, get, and take advantage of them. You're going to make the decision. You're going to make the rule, but you should listen. A husband should listen to his wife for what she thinks and what she acts. Now, ultimately, he has to make the decision. And when he makes the decision, then her job is to abide under that decision and stay under. And this is even in the military. When somebody makes a decision, if you are obeying the, the, the instructions given to you, you are covered by being obedient to that position. And, you know, hey, I'm just doing what I was told. They, they, you know, the, the captain, the lieutenant, the, the commander, whoever, the, the sergeant, the corporal, whoever it might be, they said do this, I'm doing, I'm doing what I'm told. And you're protected by abiding. Now, if I go, well, you know, I'm just going to do what I want. I don't care that the sergeant said do this. I'm going to go do what I want. Whether I'm right or wrong does not matter because I'm not under the covering and the protection of that authority. And this is why it's so important for us to stay under authority, because that authority protects us. The wife who's staying under subjection to her husband, even though the husband's doing stupid stuff, is protected by his authority. 
it's under an umbrella of authority and saying, well, you know, I'm not getting so soaked because I'm under that authority. You know, he's put us in the middle of this stupid storm and it's made really bad decisions, but I am abiding under the authority. And this is something that's very important for us to understand. And all through the scriptures, God says, touch not the anointed, touch not the authority. Our job is just to abide under subjection. And here it's saying that everything has been placed under Jesus' authority, as it's supposed to be. And eventually we'll be placed back under our authority, especially in the new heaven and new earth when we are now perfectly glorified bodies and everything and we will be in our position of authority. And he says, now everything is under authority. And each one of us will have people above us and that will be, be under their authority and people will be in, under us and angels will be under us and there will be proper authority. And this is something very important that, that this writer is talking about. Lord, we just thank you for this. We ask you to help us to understand what it means to stay under authority, to walk with you and be properly following you in all that you do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona. 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.